because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Usually I have a long intro, but everyone watching this probably knows my guest today, so we want to just jump right in. Uh, Michael Schellenberger, welcome back to Power Hour. Awesome to be back with you, Alex. Okay, so we got a lot to talk about, but I first want to talk about, you know, the last maybe, when, when did Apocalypse Never come out? Was that early 2020? No, uh, J- June 30th, 2020. June 30th. Okay, so it's like, let's just say the last 18 months or so. So I think you've, I mean, you were already well known as a nuclear advocate, um, you know, as a contrarian thinker, uh, but really I think Apocalypse Never really exploded. And now you have this new book that also looks to be a blockbuster um, San Francisco, San Francisco, rather, sorry, which I'm going to read very soon now that I finally finished mine and I can't do anything with it. I just finished it on Tuesday. Um, Congratulations. Tuesday midnight. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you. thank you. So, um, but I want to ask, like, even going back further, like, let's just talk about what caused you to, so you were at Breakthrough for a while, and then you started a few years ago, this group, Environmental Progress. So I want to go back then and just know sort of what, what were your goals in starting Environmental Progress? Because it seems like you've ended up achieving a lot of them. So it's, it's exciting oh, to know boy, about how I, I, <laughs> You're very generous. I'm not sure if that's true. But yeah, I mean, I started uh, Environmental Progress really to do um, research and advocacy. And I was excited about two issues. The first was defending the right of poor countries to develop with including their energy resources, which of course are the foundation of that development. And then also to uh, save nuclear power from its decline. And I really, just because nuclear turns out to be a huge issue, (laughs) whoever knew nuclear would be so complicated, um, you know, that I just really didn't have a chance to work on the issue on the defense of, of the right of poor countries to, de- to develop their energy resources until Apocalypse Never, which started as a book on nuclear, and then it shifted to be brought about climate. And as you know, since you read it, we talked about last year, it has nuclear as one of the through lines through it, but it also has a humanist story, a story of human development as a story of energy progress, energy transitions. And really making a, a strong argument against Malthusian environmentalism or anti-human environmentalism. So definitely we've made, I mean, n- nuclear for sure, we've made a lot of progress in five years. Uh, we've made a lot of progress in 10 years. You know, if you just start from Fukushima, which just, you know, is really 10 years ago was both Fukushima and the gas revolution in the United States. And both of them had a negative, hugely negative impact on nuclear we saved, you know, we basically did the advocacy, bread and butter advocacy, you know, open letters from climate scientists, testifying in front of legislatures, writing op-eds, writing columns for Forbes. And it's had a big impact. I mean, we saved nuclear plants in Illinois. Uh, the pro-nuclear movement has twice now. New York, upstate plants, obviously not Indian Point. New Jersey, Connecticut, South Korea. And the whole time we, we invested in people, you know, we invested in leaders in different countries. So now there's genuinely a pro-nuclear movement. It's not vaporware. There are really pro-nuclear leaders in different countries. They're independent of me, independent-minded. We don't agree on everything. It's a sign that that there's an independent movement here. And so, you know, and that movement also gave courage to people in the nuclear industry so that when we, when this, when the energy crisis hit in a big way, 
what August, September of this year, um, the institutions, the nuclear institutions were ready to go and ready to make the case for nuclear. I always, I, I'm obsessed with this little video that the president of France put on Twitter, La Reve Possible, which is the dream is possible. If you haven't seen it, Alex, you have to watch it. No, I it's incredible. It. It's, um, it's like, a. It's like if you were making a, a Twitter advertisement for nuclear, it's everything you'd want it to be. I mean, it's it's basically, you know, it has little it's like a little it's like a lot of uh, quick cuts and, you know, but film footage, archival footage from the last hundred and hundred twenty years. I mean, it has a little video of Marie Curie in there, artificial mm. hearts. So it puts nuclear as a technology in the history of French you know, innovation, but they show mm. the Concorde, even though the Concorde is viewed as a failure, they show the artificial heart DNA research, you know, rockets. Um, and it's so exciting because it is communicating the optimism of environmental humanists, energy humanists, atomic humanists in such a short period of time. I'm obsessed with it. I hope your readers go see it. They can just go to Emmanuel Macron's Twitter feed it's in French, you know, but it's La Reve Possible, The Dream is Possible. You should be able to find it. Oh, and I linked to it in a couple of columns ago. Awesome. So, yes, the, you know, the nuclear thing, that's always something we've both been enthusiastic about and you've been really on the ground about it. And then, you know, with Apocalypse Never and a little bit before it, you know, you really started explicitly challenging climate catastrophism, which I think had been implied by some of your work, but it became much more explicit. And now I think you even more do it maybe than even Apocalypse Never. I'm curious. Yeah. Uh, I know what part of what that brought that about was some of the psychological stuff that you just saw, like the mental child abuse that's happening, scaring people <laughs> thinking the world is going to end. And yeah. I'm really curious, any other motives, but also kind of what success you've had, because it seems like a lot of people are waking up to that, uh, maybe learning it from you for the first time, or at the very least having it reinforced by you. I hope so. I mean, the most satisfying part of one of the most satisfying parts of Apocalypse Never are the letters that you get from people that read the book and were like, I was depressed. Mm. I feel so much better now. Parents talking about how their kids have been affected and how they've been talking to their kids about it. You know, people that kind of say, I try to talk to my friends about it. They're still very close minded, but I know that that makes a difference, too. Even when people say they're not listening, I think they are listening sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. For me, it's been it's been a rough ride in some ways. I mean, it's um, you know, we had a bunch of supporters who were very apocalyptic about climate change and had a kind of Marvel Universe, you know, heroic vision of inventing some magic box. You I thought know, you were going to say they like, had Thanos's vision of killing half the people. Oh, no, I mean, <laughs> you know, later. they were I had a lot of pro nuclear donors that wanted me to say climate change is an apocalyptic threat. Nuclear is part of the solution with renewables. Fossil fuels are totally bad. And these are all, you know, liberal, left to center, pro-nuclear people. And I just was not on board with it after a while. And I realized that part of the reason there's a lot of motivations to shift from nuclear to this broader theme. But one of which is that there was some, some risk for me in terms of the future of my organization and myself. And so I felt like I needed to say what I believe on all of these issues in a single place, let the chips fall where they may. And if I lost some supporters, that that would be okay. I'd say goodbye to them. And then I'd reconstruct environmental progress on new foundation. And that's basically what we've done. And so the donors that are still with us are committed to the vision. You know, the vision, it's easy to explain to people. It's like read Apocalypse Never in San Francisco. 
like that's the foundation of the organization. And um, yeah, and we've gotten a bit smaller, but I feel really happy about a new foundation that we're on, um, you know, where I'm just able to and feel and, and we're just set up now where I feel much more comfortable just saying the full truth of what I think about all issues at all times and not having to, you know, kind of hold back or or sugarcoat things because it might upset some people that are in my coalition. I think it's also inarguable that you're much more influential now because I, you know, I know, I know some of those communities in terms of the pro-nuclear people who are like consistently anti-fossil fuels because I have some commonalities with them and many non-commonalities right. uh, with them. But it, it, so I can see it'd be harder to get money and support and that kind of thing. But if you look at your profile, I have an anecdote I've never told you or anyone where I was talking to a high-level agent about particular, uh, possibly me doing a book on nuclear, and the, they thought it was a good idea. And I thought like, okay, yeah, but I want to do other stuff first. And anyway, Michael Schellenberger, he can do it. And they're like, who's Michael Schellenberger? Nobody's going to want a big book from him. Like this was, this was three years ago. And now you've got these two blockbusters. And I think a lot of it is because you're now out there just as yourself, as an individual thinker. And that's much more powerful than an organization that kind of oversimplifies things and, and homogenizes you with other people. So there's probably some less. Yeah, you got that right. Absolutely. And that's similar. Uh, that's my situation in that sense is not unique. The, this is a, we're in a media environment where people are trusted as individuals and not as organizations. We trust individual people with their Substack or their Twitter, their Twitter page and whatever their podcast. We don't intuitively trust, you know, we don't kind of go, Oh, I, I look for all of my information to the American enterprise Institute, whatever right. they say, I believe. No, right. you say, you say, I like Sally Sattel at AEI. I don't know about the other people there. Maybe they're good. Maybe they're not, but I don't know. I know Sally Sattel. So I think that's, you're right. That's, you know, and it's, you know, as a, as a writer and as a thinker, it is such an individual pursuit. You know, it's hard. It's nice to co-author things occasionally, but for the most part, especially if you're trying to write into the moment and into the news cycle, it's, it, you do need some amount of independence. Yeah, that individual point, I think, is, is something that movements should learn. I remember I was talking to one of the big uh, like trade groups a few years ago, and I, I, my view was because they're like, OK, what initiative can we do branded by us? And my view was like, you should just take everyone who's an individual who's at all successful and try to help them with PR, and like help them book more TV interviews and give them publicity, because those are people who have a proven ability to actually connect with people. And you as the XYZ Institute, nobody's ever gonna believe it because they're just gonna think you're just a bunch of people and you have to do whatever the bureaucratic thing to do is, and you have a mandate. It's like, it's really hard to trust a trade group, but you could have somebody at a trade group that you trust as an individual, um, but, but they usually just don't, go out as individuals. And that's why you, you almost know nobody, no average person knows that this is, that's inarticulate. Almost nobody has like these positive associations with organizations. And I think it's becoming increasingly rare. That I do, do too. Those who do. And it's, it's actually the, the relationship of trust to institutional brands is, is declining. I think over time it will continue to. Interesting. So, I mean, what have you learned in, with Apocalypse Never? And, you know, you have this incredible Twitter account, which I've learned a lot about how to persuade people from your uh, Twitter account. I think among the energy humanists, you have the most influential Twitter account. At some point, maybe I'll try to outcompete you, but uh, you're, it's an amazing account. What have you learned you. about persuading people from the book and from your Twitter and from maybe from your Substack as well and from your, your 
former Forbes column, which I know got a lot of traction? Oh, it's a really great question. I mean, the first thing is just, you know, writing into the news cycle obviously makes a difference. You know, um, I just published a piece that was my reflections on the elections you know, it'll get some attention. But what really got my attention was just tweeting out a bunch of the video from CNN the night of the elections. You know, that was that's the stuff that goes viral. It's not it's not super substantive, but it's interesting. I like I like journalism. I like being in the news cycle. That's a big part of it. So for, so certainly speed, I think, matters. You know, I try to um, you know, I love steel manning. I take a lot of pride in being able to represent my opponent's arguments as well as I can. Uh, you know, my, the nuclear chapter in Apocalypse Never, you know, it's like, I think it's like two or three pages of me being the best anti-nuclear activist I'm able to be. So I always build that into my articles. You'll usually see it in the second or third paragraph of me Mm -hmm. being like, okay, let me tell you what I think, you know, if I'm a progressive defending the results of this election, how would I defend them? And and then also, I like I like when I like tweeting. I like writing Substacks that are you know just that are that are have neutral language, because I do I do write strong. I try to write I try to be as strong as I can without exaggerating. I think sometimes people when they I think sometimes people perceive it as rhetorical or something. But usually, if you read my texts, I'm not using a lot of adjectives. I'm not trying to. Uh, over, I'm trying to avoid over egging the pudding. I don't think I always do that. Sometimes I'm sure I make mistakes, but the, my goal is still to use a more objective journalistic style and describe things. Certainly, I did that in Apocalypse Never, though, even more so in San Francisco. I really quoted a lot of liberals and progressives describing the problem. I really felt like if this book is going to be persuasive, I needed to quote actually quote other progressives, including radical left people who basically were saying, yeah, we've got a big problem. You know, we need to do involuntary care. We need to arrest people because I do think it's more persuasive to quote, you know, people, for, you know, and so this stuff that you and I were talking about before we got on, before we recorded was just, you know, I'm interested in what's happening in the oil and gas sector. In that case, I'm just interested in quoting people within the oil and gas sector. So it's always like, you know, paying attention to what the experts are saying, being skeptical of them, but also, you know, showing a fair amount of respect, even if I don't totally agree with their, the implications that they draw. Yeah, I think that's connected to one thing you did well in your Forbes columns in an Apocalypse Never was quoting some of these more mainstream climate scientists that would be, they would be considered catastrophists, but they won't, they're not really catastrophists. Like, I mean, they're very different than my view, but like a Ken Caldera or something like that, even a Carrie Emanuel. And it's really fascinating to see, oh yeah, they don't really jump on board to this catastrophism at all. And it's so powerful to see that because it's not just, oh, here's some outsider who got kicked out of MIT 40 years ago or whatever. It's like, no, here's a guy at Stanford and he's a mainstream guy, but he's even saying, this is too much. It just gives the, it gives his skepticism of climate catastrophism so much more credibility than somebody you would expect to be that. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the chapter on the Amazon, the main scientific expert character, Dan Nepstad, gave me a 90 minute interview (laughs) Right in the middle of the really alarmist bad stuff in 2019, it must have been. Mm-hmm. And um, he later said that he's like, that's the interview I most regret ever giving in my entire career <laughs> to me. And I was, uh, I get it. I, I was actually kind of flattered by it because 
he was so honest and and I think he had been honest like that with other journalists in the past but a I don't think many journalists actually stick on the phone with people for 90 minutes you know b I think most journalists then they filter it through their own filter to come out with this apocalyptic story where I was able to write a more balanced story you know in San Francisco I'm always trying to get to the bottom of it you know and and that means that you know in San Francisco there's I have arguments with ACLU you know, who are the people that are really blocking the kind of reforms that we need to care for our mentally ill. And because I really need to understand it. So you, so part of what I, the style I want to bring in here is of really healthy disagreement with people, you know, where, cause I told, I know the head of the ACL, I've known the head, the head of the California and United States ACLU for over 20 years now. And I just told him, I was like, I think you guys are wrong, but I want to talk to your top attorney and get to the bottom of it. And so there's a fair amount of, it's sort of similar to remember, I don't know if you remember the plastics chapter where the main character is the woman who filmed pulling the plastic straw out of the sea turtle's nose. Mm-hmm. I sort of agreed with her on a bunch of stuff, but then disagreed with her on other stuff. So I do want to try to, with each of these characters, with these characters, I really like to, if possible, try to bring out some of the roundedness some of the the combination of agreement and disagreement, because I do think one of the things in the culture that we need to push back against is, you know, the either the sanctification or the deification of individuals when everybody's a mixed bag and we usually have overlapping and overlapping agreements and disagreements. And the nice thing about a book is it gives you the space to bring out that richness and subtlety and detail. You know, I'm having an argument right now with somebody about San Francisco who was who was somebody who they're really annoying me right now. <laughs> I'm not gonna say who it is, um, but they were amazing in terms of the research for the book. Like there's things in San Francisco that were only possible because of them, you know? And so I'm always reminding myself, this person's really annoying you right now, but mm-hmm. they were really important to the book. I'm just curious. Do you ever block people on Twitter? Oh my gosh. I block people a lot. Oh, in really? fact, I'm, I'm a big advocate your, of what's it. What's your policy? I think they're very, yeah. they're very interesting differences that would cause, cause I don't block anyone. So I'm really curious, how, but I'll bet you have some good reasons. Yeah. Um, I block because I think I'd like for my, I'd like for people that actually care about having a substantive conversation. I feel like they can go on a feed and know that if they comment thoughtfully, that I'll see it. And if there's just a bunch of spam and garbage and personal attacks or misinformation, I don't want to have to correct it. Um, you know, if there's someone who's like, what about the nuclear waste, dude, you're not taking into consideration nuclear waste. I'll be like, yeah, no, we have. And here's what the answer is. Mm-hmm. But if they're like, you work for the Koch brothers and I've proved it and they link to a website that doesn't show that because there is no website that shows that, um, then I'm kind of like, you know, why do I have to keep responding to you? And then otherwise I have to keep, you know, so I do block people, you know, I think, uh, one, you know, I don't know if my friend, Steven Pinker, you know, he, when he tweets, a lot of people do this now, they, they said they do the tweets where only certain people can respond. Right. And I considered that. And then I was like, you know, that's not right either, because then you can't invite in any new people. So I do block. Um, and, you know, sometimes I've had people be like, Hey, you blocked a friend of mine or you, or, you know, I've had people email me and be like, you shouldn't have blocked me. And I'll, and I'll be like, okay. And I'll just unblock them. But for the most part, like if you want to read my stuff, you can subscribe to my Substack and I don't block anybody on Substack, you know, or you can read the Substacks for free. But for me, I still want to retain some sense in which the Twitter can be a place of conversation and dialogue and not have it just turn into a cesspool. Yeah, it sounds like probably the best 
overall policy, at least, and, and I may change my policy, that's why I'm interested in yours. So it kind of my, my positioning is like, I believe like I'm right and I will debate anyone. And part of it is I'm trying to empower my fans, the people who follow my stuff. So I sort of like, like there are a couple of notable trolls and they kind of come and go, but there's one right now. It's like a pretty unbelievable in terms of quantity of stuff, but he's like relatively intelligent and occasionally makes good points and often makes very bad points. But I like seeing the people on my side respond. And at least at this point, I just want it to be totally unequivocal that like, I will debate anyone. And, and I even I've told them, look, I will debate anyone, but you actually have to have an audience that wants to hear it or you have to hire me to speak. And of course they're like, that's so ridiculous. I'm like, wait a second, my time has value. You just have to find any show with circulation and I will go on uh, with you. But I may I may have to change it over time. And, and the one thing I have, I blocked one person and it's because he put the exact same link like every 40 seconds on something about right, it. Right, so, right. Like, you cannot repeat, the, like you cannot literally spam me with the exact yeah. uh, same thing. Well, you're more, I think you're more libertarian than I am. So maybe that is reflected in our Twitter policies. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Cause the libertarianism is purely <laughs> like, I don't believe in suppressing the platforms at all. Like I believe they can do what they want. Uh, so I'm like, I'm, yeah. I'm like my view of freedom means like you can do whatever you want right, right. with your own property. But yeah, I'm totally right, right. in favor of curated things. And as a consumer of your stuff, like, I'm kind of glad you have that policy. And so that's why I was, I was, I was curious, but for now, like it's open season on me. Anyone can say anything. Uh, and it's a very high threshold. I guess if they kept lying about me and I disproved the lie, then I might. And that this actually one person, I gave him a warning because he's like, you are a lobbyist. And you keep saying that every single thing. And I'm like, look, I'm not a lobbyist. That's not what I am. I'm not classified as a lobbyist. Like you can't keep saying that. Um, so maybe. Yeah, yeah, that. yeah. I'm a big, a bigger problem for me. That's, that's one issue. I think the bigger problem for me is just the addiction. Um, and there's now really good research on, you know, social media addiction, but I'll just give you an example. This morning, I criticized Paul Krugman mm-hmm. and really owned him in a very satisfying thread where he was uh-huh. claiming that the president has nothing to do with oil prices, which is right. Yeah, that was a great one. Um, I, I retweeted that one. And, uh, I did that. I was super proud of myself. <laughs> and, um, I wanted to keep going back and checking it, but I was mm-hmm. writing this other column and I could feel myself being like, yeah, but I could go check that Twitter feed and just get some more satisfaction at how yeah. hard I'm owning Paul Krugman. And yeah. I remember being like, yeah, like you need to not do that. You need to just finish writing this column. I do find that, you know, and I've also had like, just, I think a lot of people, since I, now that I work from home, um, just eating too much or eating in between meals. And so I find myself you know, like being like, I have to limit my social media <laughs> consumption and my food consumption. <laughs> um, and that because they're both sort of like, you know, how, like when you're writing, you're like, oh, God, I'm just going to go get a piece of chocolate right now. You know, <laughs> and it was like, I'm just going to go check Twitter and they can often deliver a similar um, escape when you really shouldn't have one. So I actually think I have solutions to both of those because I've worked. Oh, good. What are they? So yeah. this, this is my single best productivity idea I've come up with in the last two years is the first one. And it's dividing my time between performance time and feedback time. And mm. so the, the, the recognition is that the, the intake of feedback is an incredibly powerful force for human beings. So that's what's going on. It's not just distraction. Right. It's that you're yeah, getting yeah. an evaluation. So right, right. what I do, and I, I, I abide by this most of the time, and I'll tell you how I still do a lot on Twitter besides that, but is I just have, I check Twitter, I get feedback on Twitter once a day. 
So I have uh-huh. a time and it's actually near the beginning of the day. So I look uh-huh. at, you know, all my verified things, you know, like if you have a blue check, you can see your verified and impressions and stuff like that. Right. But it's only, it's only once. Uh, mm-hmm. And I do this most days uh, successfully. And so what happens is I can still create things on Twitter, but I do it through typefully or something that's outside Twitter. So I don't right. look at the responses right. to it. And it just allows me to be very productive and to be excited about that one time of the day. But then right. that time of the day uh, is done. I do the same thing for email. I only check email once a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, the qualification is I do, this is because you might wonder, well, what if something really important comes in? So I have an assistant who checks my social media messages, email, everything once an hour so that I uh-huh. know that I'm always protected. Because otherwise cool. you think like, oh, what if, uh, what if CNN wants to talk to me, right? And so I, I can't validly ask that question because he's doing that every day and even a couple of times on, on weekends. Yeah, that's the power of routines, right? It's like you have to structure your day so that you're not having, because it takes energy to not go and um, indulge in something. And so if you set aside those at the beginning or at certain parts of the day, I totally agree. I need to get better at those routines. But it, and, and so if there's a controversy, like, do you do it at the beginning of the day or the end of the day? Because a lot of people think like, oh, I want to do all the productive stuff at the beginning. The great thing about getting the feedback out of the way at the beginning is, you know, for every conscious hour that you are not checking anything. Like it's right. out of your mind as a possibility until right. you wake up. So the, the, the most that can happen is you'll want to get up early, which is not the worst thing in the world. But no, it's, it's, it's great. I find that I'm so much smart. It's, it's shocking. And I had the reverse experience yesterday because I had a, I had a video, I had just finished my book. I was sort of like not in this performance mode. And I had this video clip on GB news that was like, it was really well received. And it was just really fun to see that. And I've been doing this book and not, and that's very long-term feedback, but I just noticed, oh my God, I'm an idiot. Like I do not function well at all. But when this is out of my mind, I can think proactively and I can mm-hmm. do real work and I'm so much happier. So that's why I like I, feedback time in the morning. And then, and then I can, it's performance time until I wake up the next morning. Nice. Food, you look like you're doing just fine with. Uh, the only thing that I do definitely is I just make sure I have a minimum spacing between my last meal and my first meal. Like it's just at least 13 hours. And that, that for me just prevents me from going off the deep end in terms of consuming stuff. Also, I, I, I have a gluten allergy now, or I noticed that. So that, that just limits a lot of junk too, because a lot of the best tasting stuff will make me feel sick. Yeah. Um, all right. So yeah, that's that's our little uh, productivity for writers who ha- get a lot of public attention uh, exactly. segment. So let's talk about San Francisco because this is a really interesting development for you. When did you? Because st- it and it seemed it was a little odd maybe from the public's perspective because you were getting so much attention on these energy and environmental issues, and then you jumped into this. And I know you have this three part thing with your with Harper Collins, your publisher. But like, when did this start for you? And then when did you decide, okay, I'm going to devote a big chunk of my life to writing about this and fighting it? Yeah. Well, great question. So you know, I mean, it really starts in twenty. You know, in 2018, when I ran for governor, I started to look at housing and homelessness. And I was when I came back into it, I was like, this is such a big deal. But I still kind of viewed it as a housing problem. And then in 2019, I wrote an article about why the governor needed to have a state of emergency on homelessness so that he could approve housing. And some friends were like, dude, you need to take a harder look at drugs, drug addiction and and mental illness as drivers of who's on the street. And I was like, oh, of course, of course I know that. 
Dr. Drew, who's the famous, um, what was he? He's, he was he's like, Dr. Drew. Yeah, he's Dr. <laughs> he was Drew. He's on Love Line. That was he's on Love Line. Yeah, he, I did his show. I did his show on the Amazon, and then and then and then I knew that he was sort of outspoken on homelessness, and I was like, what you know, what's going on? And he was like, you just got to read these books. So I read the books. So they were about mental illness and addiction. And then I wrote a follow-up piece called Why California Makes Homelessness Worse. My Forbes editors were like, you can't do any more uh, <laughs> columns on homelessness. You're out of your swim lane, dude. And so it was clear that if I was going to be able to do anything else on that, if I was going to be my bailiwick, I had to do a book. Apocalypse Never became a bestseller. So I had an opportunity. But even before it became, before it actually before it was published, you know, I was... I was a little depressed after the beginning of the COVID pandemic because it completely threw a wrench into my plans for the year. I was planning on traveling around the world and promoting Apocalypse Never and building the pro-nuclear movement. I was really excited about it. And then we were all grounded, right? And I was a bit depressed for a bit. And I started watching these videos of Viktor Frankl, who's the famous Austrian psychiatrist who figures out that Freudian psychoanalysis doesn't work on depressed people. This is in the 30s. And what does work when he's counseling young people who are depressed and even suicidal is he would say, why don't you kill yourself? <laughs> Which I just thought was amazing um, and sort of really twisted and dark. And of course, he's not saying that they should. He's just saying, why do you live? You know, what is the purpose of your life? You know, and they would say things like, well, I've got my girlfriend, I want to get married one day, I want to have kids, or, you know, my parents would be heartbroken if I killed myself, or I want to become an engineer or an artist. And it was just a reminder. I mean, first thing that happens, I watched these YouTube videos, and I was and I felt better, I felt happier. And then I was like, well, I better get a goal. My problem is that I don't have a goal anymore. Like the reason I'm depressed is that I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, I, I had this plan. When, when is this in terms of the launch of must have been, Apocalypse Never? Well, it must have been. I mean, it started with the pandemic starts, what, in March? So March, yeah. April. So Apocalypse Never is not even out yet. You know, I never was super worried about Apocalypse Never. I had a lot of confidence in the book. I knew it was a good book and um, I, I, th I thought it would be successful, but I just didn't know what to do with my time. You know, mm. I was just kind of like, what am I supposed to be doing and tweeting about climate and energy was like bizarre in March and April, right? So I needed something to, I'm a very high energy person. I read a lot. I read everything. Um, so I needed something else. And I basically just decided to start working on, on San Francisco at that point. And then I got the book contract. You know, I was working on the book contract when Apocalypse Never was published and Apocalypse Never became a bestseller. And then I got a book contract. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different reasons to want to do it. I mean, the biggest one is just I am I'm upset by these open drug scenes. I'm upset by the street addiction crisis. I'm upset by the 100,000 people on the streets of California, and they're very ill. You know, my aunt had schizophrenia. She was well taken care of. My parents are psychologists. My wife is um, PhD in sociology of kind of families. My sister works with people that are mentally ill and drug addicted and permanent supportive housing. So this is all in the family. And yeah, I just was like, this is, this is crazy. And I think with Apocalypse Never, you know, I've got a, I've, I, I do have a book contract, by the way, uh, to, to come back to my book on nuclear, but I feel like I got to the bottom of it, of nuclear and energy and the environment. I mean, there's some stuff I'm interested in, like you and I are going to talk about what's really going on with the oil and gas sector. 
But in terms of like the big questions of like what matters in terms of human flourishing and environmental protection, I feel like I got to the bottom of that with Apocalypse Never. So with a lot of intellectual energy left, I, I wanted to pick on a, kind of a big new topic. And so that's how I landed on San Francisco. I mean, yeah, it's, so what's your, what's your basic analysis of it? And, and I mean, maybe even before that, just describe a little bit what it's like being in some of these cities for people who are not uh, witnessing it firsthand. Sure. So if you come to San Francisco or Los Angeles or, or Seattle or Portland, but really whole sets of cities beyond that, Denver, Sacramento, Austin, there are large numbers of so-called homeless people living on the street in many of these cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles, a lot of people living in tents, increasingly large tents, encampments. When you interview social workers, they'll tell you that 100% of the people on the streets are either addicted to hard drugs or mentally ill or both. There is a lot of waste everywhere, human waste, human feces, food waste, garbage, junk. It smells incredible. Um, it's on the one hand, it's sort of like being in a, people always compared to like a slum in the third world in a developing country, but it's not the same in the sense that really poor neighborhoods and poor countries, people still, they don't use, they don't, they don't defecate on the, on the streets. You know, there's, there's still some, not always great, but usually better hygiene and so this is clearly a problem of untreated mental illness and addiction. It's been grossly mischaracterized by progressives, by the radical left as a housing problem. And, and words are so powerful. You know, the word homeless is just such a propaganda word. It manipulates our thinking and thus manipulates our emotions. And so, you know, it's like, even for me, I had a fair amount of experience interacting with people on the street. I'm a pretty, you know, I'm a pretty street savvy person. I feel comfortable walking in dangerous neighborhoods and dangerous countries. I've been in war zones. Um, and I talk to everybody. I'm a trained, I'm an anthropologist and journalist. I like to interview people. I mean, you know, if you just talk to so-called homeless people on the street, it's obvious that they're not just there because they can't afford the rent. You know, it's obvious. And so you have to kind of, it's such an interesting thing, the ways, but we see it everywhere where you just, people just project an idea onto some physical, onto some human being or some physical reality. So part of my desire to write this book was first to sort of say, okay, once you understand what's really going on, which is what the Europeans call an open drug scene, which is basically an open drug market that people live in. And once you understand that the drivers are untreated mental illness and a kind of radical left libertarianism that says you can't arrest anybody for breaking laws, then you kind of, then you get to the real interesting question, which is how did it ever get like this? How did they let it get so bad? What's the ideology behind this that justifies it? So there's a sort of practical part of the book, which is what do we need to do? I argue for a modified Dutch model, similar to what they do in the Netherlands, very humanistic. They don't allow people to sleep on the street. You must sleep in a shelter or you'll be arrested. You can't use drugs publicly. You can't defecate publicly. If you're psychotic, whether from methamphetamine use or from schizophrenia, you need to get help. Um, they're not hunting people down in their homes who are peacefully you know, using heroin, but when they break the law, addicts you know, get the opportunity to get rehab. 
So it's not, it's not super complicated in terms of what the actual solving the problem. I had somebody earlier this morning ask me, you know, how long, if you were king of California, how long would it take to fix? And, you know, you make a big difference in two years, really in a year, you could do a lot. You need some time to kind of get the shelters up and train the staff and get your psych departments ready to go and your hospitals prepped. But it's not, it's doable. The real problem is just the politics of California, the politics being so entrenched and trying to succeed politically, I think is, is the bigger challenge. So what's kind of, what's the intellectual resistance among the California left? Well, great question. So that's such a big question. So, you know, there's sort of two groups of people and I'm just going to simplify because it's easier that way. There's sort of like your basic bleeding heart liberals, like my neighbors in the Berkeley Hills, where they just see people on the street and they feel sorry for them and they want to give them money and help. And when progressives and Democrats say these people are victims and we shouldn't, you know, mistreat them, this is not a criminal problem, it's a, a health problem. Everybody nods their head and says, yeah, yeah, that's right. But they are, when you say, look, we have to enforce the laws. This is, this is the city is falling apart. They go, oh gosh, that sounds really harsh. You know, that's your basic liberal view in California. There's a second group, which is the leaders of the so-called homeless movements, the, the radical left, the people that run the institutions that defend these policies, many of the radical left politicians, the progressive city council members, they are much more hardcore. Their view is the system, our democratic capitalist system is evil. It's the, it's the cause of all problems. They are very narrowly concerned with the victims of the system rather than the victims of, of other individuals. So, you know, 30 times more African-Americans are killed by civilians than police. Why, why is the left, you know, why do we have millions of people that take to the streets to protest the police killing of one unarmed civilian? But there's no protests, there's no movement, there's no organization to prevent the killings of unarmed African-American civilians by other African-Americans. Well, the reason is they're not victims of the system. And the system has been so demonized. And I started to see this, and this is the power of having done these two books. You, I sort of see the radical left, it's co it goes after these institutions they have a utopian vision in mind. So the big one, of course, is psychiatric hospitals. You know, after the Great Depression and World War II, they were short-staffed. There were all sorts of problems. Anybody that's seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest knows that some of these hospitals became very poorly managed. But they were places that cared for people in a medical way that needed medical care. The left had this idea that it was totally terrible, that we had to shut it down. These couldn't be reformed. So we shut down the psychiatric hospitals. Basically, that's now happening again with prisons, police departments, electrical grids, nuclear power plants, oil and gas production. So I see, as I look at the institutions that civilization requires, stable energy sources, you know, reliable, stable electricity, psychiatric hospitals, police, prisons, jails. Yes, we want them all to be better. Yes, we want them all to be more humane. Nonetheless, these are the institutions of civilization. If you don't have them, you don't have a civilization. And so I'm, I've grown very concerned about the war on these institutions and, and pushing back against it. And that's why I was interested in talking to you too, because I, I, I guess I didn't really think that the 
war on oil and gas was anything more than symbolic for many years. But I think now that we're having massive oil and gas shortages, we're seeing the consequences of the war on the oil and gas sector that are very serious. And I see it all as a kind of single, even though these are people that are, you know, the, the, the radical left that's attacking these institutions, they don't talk to each other. They're not like, okay, now we did the psychiatric hospitals, let's take mm -hmm. down the nuclear plants. Some of them do, but yet that's the basic driver behind it. And I wanted to both understand it and also stand up to it and say, come on guys, like you can't be tearing down these institutions that we depend on. It seems a very strong religious component to it where it's like, this is the full, like our current world is the fallen world and then we're gonna fix it. And, you know, I think one of the antidotes, there's a lot to say about the causes, but I think one of the antidotes is to just have a huge appreciation of how amazing the world is today. And then that discredit, and if you make that explicit, it discredits anyone who is saying it's terrible. So even when you take the climate issue, like one refrain I have in Fossil Future and when I talk now is like, okay, you, it's okay to say that you're concerned that rising CO2 levels are gonna cause climate problems in the future. But you have to acknowledge that today we have never been safe from climate. Like that's an empirical fact. And if you don't acknowledge the present, you cannot be trusted to predict the future. But if, of course, the more we do understand the present, the less the apocalyptic predictions make any sense and the less plausible it is, oh, let's have AOC uh, remake everything. Because her plausibility depends on, yeah, everything is screwed. Everything is bad. It's never been worse. And it, you're in a desperate situation. It's kind of like you're almost suicidal. And you're like, okay, maybe this AOC person, she just seems to have confidence versus if it's a really, no, it's an amazing thing. This was a huge achievement in our civilization. We could make it better. But anyone who says, let's throw it out. That is the kind of person that is like, we should not trust that person at all. Yeah, so this idea that things have gotten worse from where they were in the past, that society corrupts individuals that were better in a state of nature. This is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. That's all it is. So in San Francisco, you know, there's really three big characters, you know, three big intellectual characters, and there's a bunch of subvariants, but there's Rousseau in the 18th century, who basically to win a contest, an essay writing contest, takes the contrarian view that progress, you know, that human economic and technical progress has been bad. And he invents this really, um, you know, reinvents the kind of golden age myth that things were much better in the past, invents a whole bunch of reasons for it when we were closer to nature. Then you get Marx in the 19th century who modified it significantly, but nonetheless, the idea was that capitalism was making people alienated from each other, that things were so much better. Um, I mean, he sort of had it both ways. Like he did talk about the brutality of farm life but there was still a romanticization of collective production as opposed to the private property. And then there was the famous idea, you know, property is theft and that once you have private property that it's really a way to create inequality and status competitions between people. That's Rousseau's idea too. And then you get to the 20th century and the modifications of Marx through Foucault, who's the most important thinker for the left in the 20th century, Michel Foucault, the French historian, and he sort of argues, you know, the mentally ill are not really mentally ill. They're just neuroatypical. And the people that are calling them mentally ill just want to medicalize them and put them in, in hospitals or prisons. And similarly, criminals are the real revolutionaries. 
So it all stems from this kind of wrong idea of Rousseau, which is that humans are better in a state of nature and that, and that society is this big corrupting factor. I had a lovely conversation with the great Canadian psychologist, Jordan Peterson, and he was his point, and I sort of knew this was his view, but it's good to hear it, is that, you know, apocalyptic thinking is a depressed person's, it's where you go as a depressed person, Mm. you know, the world, something, um, you know, I've had a terrible day or I'm feeling bad and therefore the world's a bad place you know, I'm a bad person and therefore the world's going to end. That's sort of the finishing logic of depressed, of depressed people. I see a lot of that in Rousseau. I see a lot of it in radical left folks, you know, the folks that become high status like AOC who become global celebrities or Greta Thunberg, they escape the depression by making everybody else, by kind of putting everybody else down. But I think they end up sowing depression in the society and the culture. I mean, it's an interesting question of to what extent is environmentalism, apocalyptic environmentalism, a manifestation of depression and to what extent does it make people depressed? And I think both are true. Yeah. And I think there's a a third dynamic, though, which is that I'm always on the lookout for things that give free status to people who feel inferior. Like, I think that's a very powerful force. And I mean, one of my favorite books, Atlas Shrugged, talks a lot about this with respect to like statism and anti-capitalism that makes you feel superior to all these productive people. So you take something like the condemnation of the 1%. Well, we know some of the 1% are people like Steve Jobs, but if we can condemn the 1%, then we get unearned superiority. And there's no better way to get unearned superiority than to say you're saving the planet from all these productive people. And so I just look at like, anytime you can give people free pseudo self-esteem, you've got yourself a powerful force. And I think a lot of the bad movements are really good, but the kind of Rousseau idea in ter- and all these Malthusian ideas, they play into it perfectly. Cause it's like all these productive people and all these institutions we've built, those people are bad. So the people you feel inferior to, you're actually superior to, and you don't have to do anything except condemn them and vote again and, you know, vote for me and give me money. Yeah, it's a really cheap put down with increasing power with social media, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's growing in power, but it's scary how powerful it is. But yeah, it's a kind of hatred of civilization, a deep anger sort of crystallizing into a hatred of civilization. I received this lovely email. It's the best email I've received since San Francisco, San Francisco came out from a a psychologist who worked at Veterans Administration in San Francisco for like 20 years with addicts, with the mentally ill. And he was still furious with so-called homeless advocates who would, you know, defend the right of sick people to sleep on the street. And he was like, they just want to say F you to civilization. That's what they're all about. They hate, they hate civilization. They're angry, you know, often from, you know, their own depression you know, including as kids or adolescents, and they've manifested that now as like their own little nonprofit to so supposedly defend the rights of poor people, but really in a kind of sociopathic way where they're not really caring about, because if you really care about street addicts, a lot of them just need intervention and medical care. The idea that you're taking care of them by letting them live in squalor is really a sad joke. And yet that's what so-called homeless advocacy is. So I'm trying to think of the, the transition between that and ESG. I would say uh, unearned superiority, <laughs> speaking of unearned superiority, that hurts people. 
let's talk about ESG. So yeah, what's, your, so, what's so. your sort of thinking about ESG lately and, and what you found surprising? Well, I mean, like I mentioned, I, I you know, I, for years, you know, when Bill McKibben and these guys were like, we're going to do shareholder advocacy to, to cut off private and public funding for oil and gas development. I was like, that's absurd. Like there's going to be, the market doesn't work like that. You know, if, if you were able to, you know, if Harvard divests from, um, you know, Exxon, somebody else will invest in Exxon. That's absurd. I didn't think that that was, I just was like, that's crazy. Right. That's just not how markets work. Well, you know, I started to see some evidence that in fact, that was what was going on. You know, basically I read, you know, Bloomberg, Goldman Sachs and, and a columnist for Financial Times were all like, they were like, no, there really should have been more investment in oil and gas development production in the United States. But when companies, firms tried to do that, one of them is the EOG. Um, when they tried to, when they announced that they were going to expand oil and gas production, they were punished by the market. Now you kind of go, well, market's always perfect. So you know, um, they just, you know, and I hear from a lot of guys in the oil and gas industry, they kind of go, well, you know, we're trying to make some money now. You know, they had a bad period from 2010 to 2015 where fracking was so successful that the price of petroleum dropped to whatever, what did it reach? $30 to $40 yeah, at least? Very, I mean, very low. I mean, yeah, there was that yeah. whole period where it was negative, but, you know, for, yeah. for a day. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, they're victims of their own success or too many victims people rushed success. in. Yeah. So, so then you kind of go, okay, well, that makes sense. But then you kind of go, well, what about when oil prices start to go up in 2016, you would have expected expanded oil and gas development. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that there's not some amount of these guys being like, no, we want to keep the market tight, but obviously we're in a situation now where, you know, Biden is like pleading with OPEC to increase production. And yet we're still not really significantly expanding oil and gas production in the United States. Maybe it is going to start to happen now, but I think I thought it was interesting because it seemed to me there were people that I trust as kind of straight market analysts who Mm -hmm. weren't like Bill McKibben hyping their own activism, who were saying, no, this ESG shareholder stuff really did um, reduce the amount of investment that went into oil and gas production in the United States more than would have occurred had there not been that activism. Now, I, I don't know, maybe you don't share that view. I'd be very interested no, no, in your I do. take I, on it. I do have that view. I mean, I've been scared as hell of the divestment movement since McKibben announced it really in 2000, uh, 2012. Uh, that's actually what I challenged him to this debate. And we had this debate is actually exactly, what, nine years ago today. And uh, he, because he had this thing that said the fossil fuel industry is, is planetary uh, enemy number one. Or, planetary enemy number one. And, and it was all about like, we're going to start this divestment movement in the model of South African uh, divestment. And so the, uh, and, but the clear goal at that point was a demonization goal, the demonization to get political control. So it's very explicit saying, we're going to make them the villain right. in, so that we can get political control over them. Now, the brilliant thing that happened later, and so that had a kind of modest success, but the brilliant thing they did later, which was not, I believe, part of this first manifesto, 
is they used in part the fact that government controls the whole financial markets and, and like government has a lot of control over these things. And what they did is they really took over the companies. So they got this quasi-political managerial control. And so that's what's really happened with ESG. When that's what you see with something like EOG. Is it's not just the markets punishing you, but it's like you have to have the sustainability person on your board and you have mm -hmm. to meet these ESG metrics. So really the divestment people have become major corporate actors. Like they are their, their belief that you should not do any of this stuff is a major factor in the operation of these companies, in the companies, and then also in the funds. I mean, the, the thing just, I talked to a lot of oil and gas people and over the past three, four years, it's all been about like, we can't get money. You know, we can't get money. We can't get money. And even, even they're saying, yeah, okay, we maybe took too much in the past, but they're really good deals. So what happens is only the very, very best deals like the ones where you're going to make huge profits, those go through, but all the marginal deals that are profitable that we need as consumers, those are being, those are being blown up. And then the other thing you see is with, uh, you're seeing this most with coal, but you're seeing some with oil and gas is even basic insurance things are being stopped. And because what, what happens is with these giant institutions is they look for these symbolic actions. And so they'll say, oh, what can I do first? I won't bond this coal mine or I won't bond, like I won't give insurance to this thing. And they, they say, or I won't allow drilling in the Arctic. But each one of these things is there for a reason. And then you just keep causing more and more problems. And so I believe it's, it's to me, the ESG thing is the scariest thing in the world because I don't believe that voters will do something idiotic, but I do believe that status seeking people in corporations who already have a lot of money and all they have to gain is, is status and all they have to lose is kind of shame the, the, I have an infinite fear of those people. Yeah. Well, it's an, it's really new. It's, I don't know of any, I guess the comparison is South Africa where it did seem like that did have an impact, but I don't know that I've seen this occur. I guess it also occurred on nuclear to some extent, um, you know, in the seventies and eighties, but it is, it is scary. It'll be interesting to see if it corrects itself now. I mean, you got to think with Biden out there being like, you know, pleading with Saudi Arabia and Russia to increase production, that there's got to be some sort of a political response, that there's got to be some sort of an economic response. But I don't know. I mean, the level of apocalyptic thinking within the financial sector is really is shocking. It's, it's alarming. I think that I mean, for, for me, it's a matter of their market forces. But I actually think, I mean, maybe I'm being megalomaniacal, but I think part of what we're doing is really helping this because you know you look even five years ago, seven years ago, there wasn't really an alternative to catastrophism, and the, you know the false framing of all the energy stuff by the catastrophist was always either you're a climate change believer, in which case you need to rapidly eliminate fossil fuels, and for some reason you hate nuclear, which made a whole bunch of sense, right? And or you don't believe we have any impact on climate, in which case fossil fuels are okay. So they framed it as oh you're a believer or denier, and they got. If you're a believer, you agree with our whole political agenda. And I think what the energy humanists have done is we've said, no, that's not the issue. The issue is really what's the best policy overall for humans. So you can believe that even we have substantially negative climate impacts overall, and you can still believe it's a terrible idea to rapidly eliminate these things, let alone to be against nuclear. And I find that the people exposed to that find that compelling. And I don't feel like the other side has had any answer. If you look at what they, I mean, they've gone out, you, maybe you have different experience, but I haven't seen anything that they've done going after you or me that's really addressed the substance of, hey, let's look at the full context, what's actually best. Let's not be apocalyptic, let's be objective. 
Like I haven't seen any response for them. And it's now been, we've had like your blockbuster book. We had Lomborg's book. We had Kunin's book. Uh, to some extent, we had Moral Case those seven years ago now. Like they don't seem to have an answer. So to me, that's very heartening because I think that, and we keep growing, you know, you're, you're getting more and more of a forum I am. So it just seems like one of these things that's really growing and there's no obvious way of stopping it because they don't seem to have any counter argument to it. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I think we're at the beginning, actually, of a backlash on it. I mean, I think that, um, you know, look, I mean, Biden was out there pleading with OPEC to, to increase oil production the day before or hours before he flew to Scotland for climate talks. They couldn't even do the stuff that they had hoped to do in terms of stopping financing from coal plants. I think that, you know, we now know um, it's now the new data show that actually uh, when they account for land use changes, they're using better satellite data that it looks like global carbon emissions peaked a couple of years ago and have been going down and have been flat for the last decade. Um, I have been saying that I thought emissions globally would peak within the next decade, but it appears they've already peaked. And, you know, okay, I'm, I'm, maybe- I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical that they will peak. That's a, that's a subject. When you, I don't oh. know, when you read Fossil Future, it'd be interesting to see. Well, and I think it partially, I don't think they will peak even with the bad policies, but I think just, you know, 3 billion people using less electricity than American refrigerator. I mean, my view is just the world is so energy poor still. So it really depends on, now we're really screwing them over in terms of development. But if you look at like the state of things in, I mean, there's another whole China, more than a whole other China and India in the world that could potentially develop. And right. Rise. I mean, in terms of the amount of yeah, right and they now, should. Although inspired. they're going to be using a lot of gas, you know, yeah, a lot of, and probably a lot of less coal. Yeah, of course. Um, so you know, but I do think that that like you know, I mean, you got to remember like when I started working on climate change twenty years ago, the goal was two degree to keep warming to two degrees. Well, we're on track for two and a half. Like right now, like we're on track for two and a half degrees. So I just don't think that I think that even the alarmists are having to admit that the the, the amount of emissions, um, the temperature increases are, are not going to be nearly what we thought they were 20 years ago. I think the gas revolution does make a big difference to all of that. It's clear that the big increase in coal was a temporary thing from China, but really even China is going to be going big on nuclear now. We saw an announcement yesterday, you know, they're going to do what was it 150 gigawatts over the next 10, 15 years, um, which is as much as we did over the last 35. Um, and yeah, I just think also the energy crisis, you know, assuming it continues for, you know, a few years, you know, at least a year, I think is going to remind people that, you know, having a- access to cheap and reliable energy is essential. And if you don't guarantee that you're going to get voted out of office. So I do think all those things matter. You know, I mean, I will say, I think climate alarmism is pretty baked into these institutions now. You've got these staffs, these professional staffs that are pretty committed in terms of their identities and their work to doing climate. You know, we're a rich society, so we can sustain a a fair amount of, um, you know, um, surplus intellectual labor. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, the form of the ESG community, but that's destructive labor. That's literally destroying. Yeah. That's, that's literally not just taking the products of our labor, but kneecapping us. Yeah. Yeah. And that's obviously, I think the biggest issue to deal with, which is, you know, how do you prevent the most advanced parts of civilization from destroying civilization out of which they came? 
you know, that's why I'm why we're writing books while we're building this movement. But I, yeah, I mean, I'm feeling more optimistic in some ways than I have in years. You know, I think we saw that there's a backlash to wokeism, which I I think includes if I kind of go, what is the core of woke progressive religion in the United States and you know, increasingly around the world, it's basically climate change and race. You know, you might add some sex with like the trans stuff, but basically these are, you know, religious movements that are trying to introduce a radically different morality from the morality that, you know, all humans are created equal, trying to suggest a victim morality where we give special rights to people that we declare to be victims. It's pretty ugly stuff. It has pretty ugly outcomes. I am optimistic that when you expose it for what it is, that people will turn away from it. I just finished reading John McWhorter's new book on woke racism. It's going to be on the New York Times bestseller list this week. It's really fun. It's really funny and satisfying to read it. And when you read it, and he, and he kind of goes through a bunch of the contradictions, you know, white people move into, into the inner city, they're accused of gentrification. White people leave the inner city, they're accused of white flight. White people enjoy black culture, they're accused of appropriation. White people avoid black culture and they're considered um, racist, you know, or ostracizing. Um, you know, I was trying to, I was trying to figure out like, why is it that for among my progressive, among progressives, it would be not only okay, I would be celebrated if yesterday, if tomorrow I came out as a woman, if I was like, Alex, I'm actually a woman, I'm a woman now, you should call me Michelle. And you would be obligated to be like, hey, respect Michael, Michelle, um, respect for you and your journey. And I would be like high status as a trans woman. But if I were like, hey guys, I'm black, um, I'm a black man, um, um, you need to, I'm going to change my identification on my driver's license. I would be like driven out of Berkeley. And so, and yet I'm physically more, have more in common with black men than I do with white women. So why is that? Like, what is maybe, that about? Maybe mentally too. Yeah. So you kind of go, what's that about? It's so completely irrational. And the answer is that, that, that trans activists want to define the category of trans in a really big way to include people that just identify mentally as a woman, not just, you know, physically. And African-Americans have a lot of reasons. And again, I'm not judging it at all, but they have a lot of reasons for trying to keep, um, you're trying to basically uh, not allow people to pass as white or, or to kind of put down people that are trying to, you know, blur that line. So it's completely arbitrary. It's obviously a religion. It's just when you get to the bottom of it, when you're like, why do we let, you know, addicts sleep on the street, kill themselves on the street? Why do we let that? And you go, because we've decided that they're victims and we shouldn't do anything to stop victims from hurting themselves. And you realize it's that dumb. You know, it's really that dumb. And you realize that like, there is no scenario for climate apocalypse that just doesn't exist. And I think there, there is, I, I, so you have to have some confidence in the, we have to have some confidence in the truth still, which I know is hard to do because we're in this super social media environment and people so resistant to the truth and they live in these bubbles, but there are, there is politics. And, you know, you saw last, I, when I was, the thing I was mentioning where I was like filming CNN commentators, mm -hmm. you know, being like, Hey, I think people think Democrats are annoying, off-putting and offensive 
and you see the watch watching them in real time being like, yeah, this is a real problem. There is a way in which politics will intrude upon our bubbles and it will correct for some of these things. It takes a while and people suffer, but nonetheless, I do think there's some correction going on. Yes, the, the comment you made earlier, I keep thinking about, about just this condemnation of civilization and how often that's happening. And I think part of what's powerful, there's a really, really good art, uh, article by Antonio Garcia Martinez. I assume you're at least a little bit familiar with him. He's the guy oh, that sure. kicked out of Apple. He oh, yeah, really yeah. Good, I subscribe to your Substack, by the way, so people should do that. I also pay subscriber to his uh, as well. He has this brilliant article in his paid Substack just about how like he thinks certain aspects of Christian morality are like make us extremely, extremely susceptible to any kind of justice type of argument. And I think what yeah. happens is people will make these justice arguments against civilization, like against civilization the way it exists. And that gives plausibility to, oh, it's all evil. It's all fallen. We should get rid of it. And so I think right. part of what's necessary is for us to have a positive vision of like to love what we have, but then have a positive vision of the future. So I think nuclear is an example of that that global human flourishing is, is an example of that, like that we're moving people toward. And that way it's, it's progressive in the best sense as in, hey, we're here and we can move forward, but we embrace a lot of what we have and we want to do better. Because what I worry about is people who are just conservative in the pure sense of the word, like, hey, let's just keep what's old. They don't really have an answer to some of those criticisms. And then the alternative becomes, oh, let's overthrow everything or let's do nothing versus I think what it right. should be is, hey, let's move us in a better direction Versus you want to you want to regress us. That's why I hate progressive as a term. I think of them as as regressives. And you can point out. And I think if you do that, you can point out all the points you made, and including like why is there no concern for all the black people being killed uh, by actual criminals? Why is there? Why are these homeless people totally uh, dehumanized? So I, th I think that part of the, what I like about your work and what I think some of us are doing is we have a vision of a better world. We appreciate this world. And we have a vision of a better one. And I think that's very, and we we argue against the bad stuff with that positive in mind versus just reacting like conservatives too often do and just say like, oh, so much better 200 years ago. And let's go back to that. Yeah, you got it. I mean, it seems like we're clearly in a transitionary period from an older politics, but uh, I would say from a neoliberal politics to a more nationalist politics. I think the obvious thing, and Andrew Sullivan just wrote a column about it, citing a bunch of my work and others, that basically the political right has the potential to embrace a positive vision of energy that includes a bigger role for nuclear. Now, that's going to include some amount of state you know, planning and state you know, vision. And so, there is, so it really turns on this question of what is the role of the state? You know, you see what China and Russia are doing they view energy as a national, as an extension of national security and of economic nationalism. I, I look at, you know, Apocalypse Never in San Francisco is offering sort of a complete, you know, uh, alternative strategy for the United States and, and potentially for the center right, which is let's support the creation of a new institution in the form of CalPsych. That's the name I'm giving to this new agency that would cover psychiatric and addiction care at the state level. But let's also have a nuclear build out and um, never ever, we should never ever be in a situation that we're in right now of oil and gas shortages. That's ridiculous. We should be exporting a lot. And if you start to run into 
some changes of supply and demand, then you're you still got a lot of nuclear plants to back up. So yeah, I mean, I agree. I think that the the future vision though requires embracing a, a new role for government, and that traditionally has been where I think conservatives have struggled. Ironically, because of course the original definition of conservatives conservatism under the you know the 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 uh, the Burke view is that conservatives are defending existing government institutions against a much more radical tear it all down Jacobianism. Oh man, now I feel like we could have another hour of discussion about this. I'll just give my my quick view, which is that I'm sympathetic. I'm very sympathetic to the Cal Psych type thing because the government, like things the government controls, it has to manage. There's a question of how much it should own. I think it should own and control much less, but if it owns and controls, it has to manage it. So it can't be like right. have a government university and then it's just like, it's filthy and it doesn't work and it's just drugs, right? You have to, you have to control it in a rational way. So what the way the government is, is owning and controlling these things and totally mismanaging it, like it, in part, it needs to it needs to manage them. With the nuclear, I think like my vision that I'm working on is how do you actually liberate it? Like how do you liberate it so that it can be competitive? And I think that's the ultimate potential of it because as long as it's an arm of the state, it's gonna be done very inefficiently. It's gonna be less evolution. Um, and it's gonna, I mean, you look at what's happening now with the plants in Atlanta and stuff like that. Uh, so that's that I think, but so at a high level, I think you have to have a, a positive vision for humanity. And then there are these different questions of, okay, what's the role of government in that vision? And that you can have a similar overall vision, which I think we probably do, and have different ideas of the means. But I think you have to have an overall vision. And that's what I think a lot of conservatism fails to have, because it's sort of like, and, and what conservatism is mostly based on in terms of the founding of America, this was an Ayn Rand point, that was a revolutionary progressive thing to say that we have rights. So we should never be in the position of just saying, let's keep what's old. It's like, let's do what's best and let's move forward and really be open to different ways of, of getting there. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think, um, I mean, with nuclear, yeah, it's a longer conversation. I think the challenge, of course, is just the relationship is just the essential danger of the technology. And if it were to be decentralized in the way that we decentralize, you know, fracking rigs, you just have some safety and security implications that I think are not not obvious. Yeah, well, that's a that's a good topic, and I'm looking forward to your to your next book. And I'm I may do one myself, depending on what uh, what you cover. But I, I'm really interested in how to decriminalize nuclear. So, Mike, where can people learn more about your work? Yeah, definitely Twitter um, at Schellenberger MD MD are my initials. He's not a doctor. I had no choice. I know he not got a doctor. Trouble, trouble for that. Somebody I get a lot me. of shit for it. Somebody emailed yeah. me and is like. I can't believe you have this. This doctor looks like a quack. And it was someone, I think it named Frank Schellenberger. And I'm like, you should have just looked at the whole name. It's not on my name. It's on the handle. And of course, I wish I, there is no Schellenberger. It was not available, nor was Schellenberger M. So anyway, that's the, that's the long explanation. But yeah, Schellenberger MD, not a doc. Um, and then the books, uh, Please Buy, Apocalypse Never, and San Francisco. They're both available through Amazon. They're really the the they're really the heart of my my output for the last few years. Awesome, man! Great to talk to you. Uh, come again anytime. You too, Alex. Great talking with you, man. Thanks again to Michael Schellenberger for joining me. You can probably tell 
it's a different day. It's actually the day after I had to run right after that interview with him. So different setting. Also, I have different lighting. We're playing around with the lighting. Uh, somebody gave an interesting suggestion on YouTube that is probably right, but I don't know that. I don't think we've totally fixed the lighting yet. So sorry for any aesthetic disturbance for those of you watching. Uh, just one point I really want to emphasize from my discussion with Mike is there's a lot of reason to be optimistic right now about the prospect of energy humanists, which is not to say at all we should be complacent, but I think this is one of those times when you can see that there's a certain school of thought that's on the rise. And as I pointed out, we don't have any real intellectual opposition. We just have this huge established opposition, but they don't really have an answer to us. And then also we are increasingly being validated by events. Now, events are a weird thing because often people think, oh, well, if, if the grid just crashes, then it's going to be great. And I never like that line of reasoning, A, because I don't want the grid to crash, and B, because if, if there isn't a real, uh, a genuine alternative explanation that's compelling and that has some traction already about why the grid was going to crash and did crash, then the establishment will just explain it away as they're trying to explain away problems in Europe saying, oh, well, it's just fossil fuels are volatile and unreliable. So let's go for reliable solar and wind. I mean, people are really making that category of argument. But if you do have events and you do have, uh, you do have an alternative explanation of those events that already has traction, then you're in really good shape. The other thing is you don't need a crisis to show that your view is right. You just need to show people all the events that are going on that validate your views. So you can show, look at it, here are the problems in Germany, here are the problems in Denmark. We don't need a total crash of everything to make these points. We just need to be aware of them and publicize them. So it's a really good time now to share the materials of energy humanists support the different kinds of causes. You can definitely check out uh, Mike's uh, organization. I think it's environmentalprogress.org. I'm quite sure it is environmentalprogress.org. And you can share my material, maybe number one, by going to my new free energy talking points newsletter. So go to alexepstein.substack.com. You'll get my latest talking points. They're very easy to share. I make it with the new format. You know, you can immediately share it on Twitter. You can share it by email. It's free. So just trying to get as many people to sign up to this uh, as possible. Also, if you want to financially support my work, including the massive R&D budget that makes a lot of the projects possible, including Fossil Future, which I just, I just really finished. Uh, I shouldn't have probably buried that. I mentioned that during the show, but it's, it's really done in terms of like, I can't make any more even remotely substantive changes. I don't even think they want me to look at the book uh, before it's out, but I've done the final editing uh, on the book. And that was really made possible in huge part by accelerators. So if you go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate, uh, you can help uh, support our research and development and our promotional efforts. Let's see uh, what else. Well, so Fossil Future is still like release date is February 22nd, 2022. So really looking forward to that. Uh, also make sure to follow what I'm up to on Twitter as well as what Mike is up to on Twitter. I think I'm up to about 70,000 followers. Mike is at 140,000. So he's doing amazingly, but he still needs more followers. We should all be in the millions. It should be that whenever these issues come up, people start looking to different energy humanists for answers. And at this point, it's really about having as many people as possible help spread the word 
because it's just again we've got a we've got a compelling product a proven ability to persuade people it's just about sharing it far and wide so anytime you mention us to a television producer you know some podcast that you like all of these things really help and at a certain point it gets a kind of escape velocity and that okay we're really there was all this resistance but now it's okay to talk to us and the more okay it is the more of us they'll talk to and the more frequently we'll be consulted so it, there's just a lot of potential right now, but we are at a very, very opportune moment and also dangerous moment given what's happening in the U.S. So we really need to oppose this reconciliation disaster. And then around the world with all of these terrible climate catastrophe, fossil fuel elimination uh, targets. So we've got this huge potential, uh, but also this really bad opposition movement. And the number one thing you can do is just share the really good work that's out there with as many people as possible. All right, let's wrap up with that. I hope you enjoyed, by the way, this was a bonus episode of Power Hour because I'm usually doing it every two weeks, but Mike emailed me and said, hey, I wanna talk about all this stuff. And I really like talking to him and I thought you would enjoy it as well. So hence the bonus episode next week I'm talking to, but I have another episode next week talking to Bjorn Lomborg. So I hope you enjoy that as well. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Com. And that is it for this week. So I'm recording this on a Friday. If you hear it on a Friday or Saturday uh, this week, or I guess any future week, uh, have a great weekend. But in any case, I'll be back next week with Bjorn Lomborg. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.